Happy Thanksgiving week and welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House. I'm here today with Jason Harris, our engineer. Our music, as always, is by Jonathan Harmon, and I'm your host, Dylan Rorick. Today it's part two with Mark Pirro. We talk about censorship. We talk about his new movie, The Dead Don't Desist. We talk about shooting in the time of COVID. We talk about Blockbuster and why everybody's all nostalgic about it. We also talk about physical media versus digital media. I hope you guys enjoy it, and uh, I'll talk to you again at the end. So you get that sold. Um, you're you're now flush with cash, and your next movie comes out, and that's Death Row Game Show. And so four years have passed between making movies, and well, not not entirely. We started Queer Wolf um, right after Paul's oh, Vampire. Okay. And as we were making Queer Wolf, I got contacted by somebody over at Crown International Pictures, and they said, uh, we might like to do a project with you. And I said, well, I'm working on a movie right now. Uh, I showed them clips from the film. They thought it was very funny. They were then thinking, maybe we might get behind this movie and make it a Crown picture. So, okay, so we waited for a while. After a couple of weeks, they decided not to. So we went ahead and finished the movie and which was about another year. And then after the movie was done and we were doing all the post-production sound work on it, I got contacted again by them saying, are you still working on your film? And it was pretty much done. Showed them the pretty much the entire film without the soundtrack altogether. They loved it, they wanted to release it, but it was super eight. So they tried blowing it up to 35 millimeter. Uh, they you know, did like two minutes of it. And of course, you know, the grain is the size of golf balls. So they said, well, um, this isn't, you know, we can't do anything with this film, but what do you, you got any other ideas? So we had Death Row Game Show script lurking about and they looked at the script and said, let's do it. So within a week, we were in pre-production on Death Row Game Show, 35 millimeter, their, their budget. Mm-hmm. We had to put Queer Wolf on hold, um, you know, the post-production because we literally had to shoot Death Row Game Show within a month. I think they gave us a month wow. uh, shooting schedule and it had to be out within like, four or five months. I mean, it was like they wanted to get it out for an October release. It went theatrical when they did eventually release it. But um, so, yeah, so we put Queer Wolf on hold, did everything we needed to do on Death Row Game Show, brought the whole team, most of them not qualified to work on 35 millimeter films, but Craig Basic was my DP, never worked in 35 before. He's now the DP. Um, you know, we, 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 and then I had a friend who brought in a group of people that had already worked on low budget films. I think they were working on a movie called slave girls from beyond infinity um and they it was a team so we brought them in to supplement our team who knew nothing about 35 millimeter and they ended up becoming a big pain in the ass but that's another story anyway we so we finished we finished death row game show and then while that was coming out and about we went back and finished queer wolf so although queer wolf came out after death row game show we actually started shooting it before death row game show that's that that was I, my the reason I bring up Death Row Game Show was this: that it's your first time shooting 35 millimeter, and that that technical shift alone must have just been a nightmare. How, was it intimidating just walking very into much. that? Oh, it was very much, especially considering that everybody that we brought in to supplement our, our naivety uh, basically knew that they were above us, and they treated us like that. It's like the only reason you got this is you lucked into it. And, and my, uh, my director of photography had a great assistant cameraman, um, but the assistant cameraman wanted to be a DP. He'd been working all his career to become a director of photography. 
-hmm. And here he is working as an assistant to somebody that had only worked in Super 8 before, or I think he might've worked in 16 too, but it was intimidating for my DP and, and the assistant cameraman kept saying, let me DP this picture, you know, let me do that. I know what I'm doing here. So a lot of people took advantage of us. And I mean, there were some people embezzling from our budget. There were some oh, people geez. that were basically stealing, you know, cause we didn't know. And we got through it and we got, we came in under budget and we came in on time pretty much. And, you know, and then uh, Crown made an incredible deal for home video where they sold it in excess of a million dollars to a company called uh, Media Home Video. Mm -hmm. And there was supposed to be a deal that we were supposed to get paid. Paramount was supposed to get paid $100,000 when the movie made its money back. Well, the movie made its money back almost immediately, but they kept giving us the runaround for like years. And eventually we had to sue them to try and even get a fraction of what was owed us. And we got some of it, but it was just, you know, they were like, hey, you should be thrilled that we put money into one of your movies. You got a chance to go out there and be a filmmaker. So, yeah. There's it so much bullshit they do to hide those numbers and, and make oh, it's it the easiest like, thing oh, in the world. Make. We didn't make, yeah. Easiest thing in the world. Because all they have to do is say that we spent this much money on promotion, advertising. Mm -hmm. Well, prove it. Oh, here's our books. You can look at it. We went to the Cannes Film Festival. We went to MeFed. We went to Telluride. We went to all these different places. Yeah, but you didn't go just with our film. You went with 20 other films that you probably also charged them. Right. And when we were allowed to audit them, we could only see the numbers for our film. So we couldn't see how it related to all the other films they were promoting and probably charging filmmakers. So right. yeah, it was it was a big mess, but eventually, you know, we got another film out there and, and we were gonna work on uh, My Mom's a Werewolf for them. I wrote the script for them. That was gonna be a follow-up. And they basically tried to do the same thing where it's like, well, we'll pay you later. Um, but they were bringing in SAG actors for that film. So most of the actors, you know, they were making a few thousand dollars, I think, uh, Susan Blakely, I think, got forty or fifty thousand dollars to be in the film, and they wanted to pay us a hundred dollars a week. You know, yeah. So, so yeah, we you know we were young and we were happy to get the jobs and the opportunities, but at the same time, we started to see how easy it was for them to take advantage of young yeah. filmmakers. And SAG came after you because of Polish Vampire. Uh, they, well, they, SAG they were coming after you. They went after the actors, but it was aimed at you. Is that correct? Yeah, that was, uh, they didn't come after me until well into the 90s because mm -hmm. I think what happened was I, I've been making movie after movie after movie using SAG actors, but doing it as a non-SAG film. So finally they said, right. we got to nip this in the bud. So I was sort of the cancer they were trying to cut out and they went after all my actors. They actually had board meetings and the actors were in front of the board of directors saying, why would you do this thing? And and the actors were going like, look, you know, we want to work. and and. And my argument was, wait a minute, you didn't get paid, so you weren't working. You were in your spare time. What union can regulate your spare time? And I was prepared to go into SAG on their behalf and argue, and they said, no, 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 don't go, don't go. It'll just make things worse. <laughs> so in essence, what they were trying to do is they were trying to shoot hostages in front of me so yeah. that I would eventually say, oh, look what's happening to all my poor friends. Okay, I'll go, I'll go signatory next time. But never did, never wanted to. And I always said, unless you want Julia Roberts in your movie, there's no point in going into bed with SAG or any of these unions. Yeah. You know, they're so restricting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so let's go back then to Curse of the Queer Wolf. Uh, the character got some response from the audience. You were, you were seeing something happening there with Polish Vampire. And mm -hmm. so you decided to go and make this movie. First off, the Marie Ospenskaya character. I, 
Thank <laughs> God you had that in there. That was fantastic. I absolutely love that scene. <laughs> yeah, she's great. She's a great actress. In fact, we ended up having to dub her because we, we ran into a conflict with her towards the end of shooting. I don't remember the specifics, but we got into some kind of a conflict and she, she left the project after we were done shooting with her. So when we needed to dub the voices, we brought in Kent Butler's wife, who was the, uh, Kent was Dick Cheese in the movie. Uh, his wife played um, Taylor's girlfriend. There's a moment where they're sitting in the kitchen. She's going, where is he? How come he didn't come home last night? Okay. She did the voice of the gypsy woman throughout the, throughout the film. Did a great job. She did a great job. You never know what uh, the original actor <laughs> And so again, I as you watch that, you see that you obviously were a fan of the old Universals. You you were bringing some of that in, mm-hmm. and for, it's so absurd. It's another absurd comedy. It's very eighties. It's so much fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably today's audience would not appreciate it as much. Surprise! <laughs> but um, I actually I I do uh, movie screenings here in town. I just at a, a coffee house. We just show cult films uh, once a month, and that's a trailer that I'll run every once in a while. Is the trailer for that one? I've I've cut it down a little because it's like over four minutes long. But uh, mm. I always I always try and throw that one in, and it always gets a great response. But I've had people ask me, "Can we watch that one sometime? We want to watch that one." <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, as you're as you're doing those and you've got people like Forrest Ackerman in there, you've got Conrad Brooks in there. Does it feel, and this is going to sound cheesy, but I don't care. Did it feel a little magical? Oh, definitely. Very much. Especially with, uh, with Conrad, because, you know, I used to stay up two in the morning to see plan nine show up on channel nine here locally, which they would run every couple of months. And I remember thinking, uh, God, somebody, loved making this movie i mean somebody believed in it whatever and then find out later on that you know conrad was a part of it and yeah there was a a bit of a tie into the old years you know the old days of filmmaking and then Mm -hmm. uh, forrest ackerman of course being a fan of his magazine for years and all that uh yeah there was a little bit of magicalness to that that i I did uh i did appreciate the them participating in my project you know, and actually when Forrest ended up having a stroke, I went and visited him in the hospital and, you know, we talked about how he enjoyed blowing up in my movie and, you know, there, we made a documentary on the making of Queer Wolf too. I don't know if you saw that or not. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's in there talking about how, you know, I, for the first time I get to blow up on screen and, you know, so yeah, he was a great guy and he enjoyed it. And, you know, we all did. Great. It's, I, to me, it's, I can only imagine, you know, um, just for, to even be sitting in a theater where Mela Nurmi's hanging out, that would yeah. be, I would have lost my mind. Um, no, I did because she didn't look anything like she did in Plan Nine from Outer Space at the no. time. That was a kind of a shock <laughs> to the system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know uh, the comedian uh, Dana Gould ended up kind of becoming her caretaker later in life. Uh, he lived in an apartment building with her and, and ended up kind of like taking her out to get groceries and things like that. Oh, uh, but yeah, she's a fascinating woman. Uh, just that entire cast, I would have, I would have lost my mind if I turned around and seen them sitting there. <laughs> yeah, it, I, uh, it was. I really, I, I love the fact though that you know you would, you did feel that you felt that homage not only to those those greats of the past, but you you were standing on the shoulders of giants, and you took a moment to appreciate that. Yeah, um, and that's that's heartening to me. <laughs> um, yeah. 
I did have to ask about Hugh Fields. Um, he's a guy you brought in. Uh, you'd lost your initial actor to play the father in um, <clears throat> Polish Vampire. He flaked, so you bring in Hugh Fields. How did you How did you come across him? I think he just answered an ad that we put in Dramalog at the time. Okay. Um, I think that's where I got most of the actors that I didn't know personally. And the guy that we originally had, um, who was fine, he auditioned fine and everything was fine. And then the day we were set to shoot, he didn't show up. And we called up, well, what's up? And his wife said he, he got stage fright. I said, well, we're here, we're ready to go. Yeah. No, okay, fine. So we uh, put in another casting notice and Hugh showed up, showed up. And uh, I put him in three in my films, I believe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, very, I mean, he was probably in the seventies when we were shooting the, the film. And he was, uh, you know, he pretty much did whatever we needed. He was very tolerant with the makeup and the dialogue and, and the whole bit. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't talked to him in years. I don't even know when. I'm, I'm sure he's gone by now, but sure. I, I don't. I don't know anything. There's nothing on the internet about him. He never really yeah. did anything other than my films. I think. Yeah, I, I was so fascinated by him, especially in Queer Wolf. He's so much fun, and I, I talk about this a lot on here with people. But what what makes a low budget movie? stand out from the crowd is when everybody is invested and they give that 110%. They're not winking at the camera. And of all the people you've got in your films that are regulars of sorts, Hugh Fields is the one where I'm like, this guy believes everything he's saying. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And in uh, Queer Wolf, he plays the faxercist, which is... <laughs> yeah, that was the first time we used his voice because I dubbed him in uh, Polish Vampire. That right. was me doing his voice, did it as right. a point of Christopher Lee sound. Um, I think back then it was the same situation. I think he just had a try, he had trouble getting the looping process down. But when we did Queer Wolf, he got he got the hang of it. So that's his uh, real he's, voice. He's so <laughs> much fun in that. that. That whole movie is just full of people who are really there to make the movie and really giving it all. Um, is that just were you lucky enough to find those people, or do you occasionally have to say, "Hey, pull it in a little"? Um, yeah, sometimes. I mean, a lot of it is in the editing. Because there's, uh, I don't know if it was Michelangelo that said, before I sculpt an image, I already see the image. And all I'm doing is, is I'm sculpting away what shouldn't be there. Right. There's a lot of bits where I would have to cut around uh, an inferior performance. Mm -hmm. um, when that happens, you try to find those magic moments that work. And then when, when the character or the actor loses it, that's when you cut to the reaction of the other person. Yeah. So... Um, but yeah, I would have parts where I'd have to pull people back or I'd say, don't be so broad or maybe bring it up a little bit for this, this take. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some of it is just knowing people when you're talking to them about doing the movie. You know, you audition them. Um, in fact, I did a film where we had an actor that really was better in the audition than he was in the movie. And it was sort of like, well, when, he, when I auditioned him, he had broken up with his girlfriend so he was really emotional and he had to, he auditioned within a really emotional scene. So he was pulling from that loss, right? Perfect. But when we did the movie, he couldn't get anywhere but that loss. You know, it's like, no, bring it up. You're happier in the scene. Oh, okay, let me try it, you know. So, you know, I wouldn't say it was a terrible thing. Maybe, you know, his performance could have been an eight and maybe it was a six, you know, but it was still enough to get us by. And the, the one thing about doing broader comedies is that you're forgiven if the comedy works, you know, people are not looking for the best performances sometimes when you're doing comedy. When I did my one and only 
thriller, which was Rage of Innocence, mm -hmm. there you really do need to have real good actors because now you're trying to work in a real world. You know, you're not yeah. as cartoony in some, as some of my other films. So that was the one that was probably the most concerning for me. Do I have what it takes to make people come across as real as opposed to a cartoon? Right. And then that one, you actually, that's another one where you had to deal with, because uh, Steph Dawson had gotten Hunger Games while you were shooting. Right. And so you had to work around that for her. Right. And um, I imagine all of the hangups that you'd run into prior to that, you were prepared. Well, when she got the part, I mean, we we're all thrilled for her. Sure. But I, I started to go into a little bit of a panic because I thought, well, what if she doesn't want to come back and finish our film? I mean, you know, and, and there was always that thought in the back of my mind. I even rewrote the script for if we do lose her. You know, I was going to change the whole ending of the movie. And so she went away. She did Hunger Games. She was gone for about two or three months. And then we used doubles. A lot of times you see the back of her head. It wouldn't be her, you know, and we got around her as much as we could. Then when she came back, and she, I, I think we shot two or three more days with her when she came back. She was fine. She was exactly as she was before. I was intimidated because I always <laughs> felt like, you know, here's a, it, it's like, you know, you got a girlfriend that leaves you for some guy with more money and a bigger dick or something, right? And then, <laughs> and then she comes back for one more little pity with you. And you're kind of like, uh, okay, thank you for coming back. I'm so happy now, you know, and I, I was intimidated. I didn't want to say action. I wanted to say, have you a moment here? Um, but, but she was very professional. And, and when I even said, you know, you could have left this project, I didn't have any commitments or, you know, I didn't have any contracts or anything like that. And she said, I committed to this, you know, I'm, I'm here. That's so, fantastic to hear. Yeah. And she's done, really a bunch of, uh, she's done a bunch of little films since that, you know, and, um, yeah. She, and she's probably one of the most professional people I've ever worked with. I mean, she was right on the money all the time and she was 110% in to her character. Uh, I'm very proud of her in that film. Great. It's a, it's a really neat film and it's such a departure for you. And yeah. I, I jump around a little bit here as we talk That's about okay. things, but um, yeah, when you were making that one, then um, what, what was, did somebody come to you and say, Hey, we need a movie that meets this criteria. Can you write that? Or is this something you came up with on your own? It was just a script I had lying around uh, years ago. I had written it. I think at, at that time it was called coming of rage um, and I just thought it'd be interesting to make a movie about how vulnerable a guy can be at the accusations of a sociopathic, you know, girl mm -hmm. um, who basically did all these things that she could to make him look like a criminal, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and I thought I would try something different, you know, having done several slapstick comedies or out there yeah. bizarre comedies, I thought, let's try and do this. And even yeah, there, there's even bits of comedy in, in Rage yeah. of Innocence, especially with his best friend, uh, played by Bill Devlin, mm -hmm. who, who you know, has all these crazy ideas about statutory rape and stuff. And, you know, so I kind of keep a little levity in the film. But, but yeah, for the most part, it's, uh, it's the, the, probably the most different. Uh, you know, it's different than anything I've ever done before and probably ever will do again. Yeah. And it... It's a movie that could very easily go to melodrama, become kind of a lifetime movie, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of a catch-all for melodrama now. But yeah, right. it, do, it doesn't because, and I, and I, when I watched it, I felt like this is a guy who's made enough movies that he knows how to reel that back and and kind of keep control over that without without it becoming a big. Um, you don't have archetypes. You don't have 
you've got complex characters is what I'm getting at, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that was that, did it come that easily for you because you had done so many movies prior to this? Uh, no, I was, I was asking the girls a lot. Do, do girls talk like this? Do young girls talk like this? You know, is this sure. sound, sound like something you would do? And they would tell me, yes, no, this is something different, whatever. Um, but yeah, I was always asking questions and because I, you get to a point pretty much in any film where you start to lose perspective and it becomes like, um, you know, like a parent that'll pull out pictures of their kids. It's like, oh, look how cute my baby is. And the kid might look like a tree frog or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a cute kid. But I would say to them, I want you to be honest. If there's something that doesn't work, if there's some dialogue that doesn't work, tell me, because I don't want to hear about it, you know, six months after the movie's done. Sure. I want to know now. So don't be afraid to throw in whatever you think is right, wrong or whatever. And they were very helpful, you know, and, and, so for the most part, um, I would say of all the films I've done, that's probably the one where I doubted myself the most. Because again, you can get away with it in a comedy if the comedy works, but in a drama, if something doesn't hit the right note, all of a sudden the audience goes, I don't believe this, you know. And what a they, refreshing thing to hear. Yeah. You know, just that you take the time to, to do that and get that kind of clarity, especially, and it's, it's always the danger of being a male writer to write dialogue for a prepubescent girl or a pubescent girl at that age right. and and get it right, you're never gonna do it. Well, so I had a, I had a twinge of that when I did Colorblinded, because that was almost, I mean, it was still set in a kind of a crazy topsy-turvy world, but yet the characters were supposed to be somewhat believable. So, and now I'm writing dialogue for black women, mm -hmm. you know, and and so, at that time, I would, again, I, I asked them the same thing. Is this what they would say? And, you know, um, mm -hmm. we use the N-word a couple of times in the movie, but mm -hmm. when we do it, it's only all, it's always said by a black person. It was always mm -hmm. said by uh, Verda's character. And it was always said, I believe, to a white person. She would always call him or her or whatever. That. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, you know, treaded that very lightly. And, yeah. and, and it actually came about because I, I was dating a black, I was dating Darwin Carson around that time. Okay. And, yeah. and she said that a lot of things would have been different in her life if she were a white woman. Um, and I said, ah, oh, you're just being paranoid. She goes, no, no, there are certain things I know would have been differently. And she goes, you know, and you're not gonna know that unless you walk in my shoes and walk a mile in my shoes. I said, I'd like to do that, you know, cause I'll be a mile away from you and I have your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so, you know, so yeah, so I'm, I'm not afraid to ask the performers if you think I'm doing this right or if you got any questions, especially if you're not paying the actors, you want them to give you input because you want them to be happy with the, the end result. You know, that's important to me. That's, uh, I, I know why they're coming back to you, you know, just to, to be that collaborative and open. Sure. Um, I've worked on a few indie films and it's very, difficult to find a director that's conciliatory and who's going to listen to you um mm -hmm. and and so to hear that is it's like i said refreshing is the only word i can come up with for oh yeah i mean it's i took my ego back in when i was a teenager you know because I, I started understanding and this is something that you learn as you go too but you really need people to like you and like working with you and being a part of your project and if you come across like a prima donna or you come across like a you know, I'm the artiste and you're going to do it my way. And I may think in the back of my mind, okay, your idea sucks. 
and I'm not going to use it, but I'm going to let you convey it. And, you know, and I'll already know that it may not work, but at least it makes them feel that they're a part of a team. And that's the way, that's the way it's always been with our projects. I think that, and also just the fact that you do want to get it right. You do want to make this seem, be re realistic. Oh, right. um, and, yeah. and, you know, are these words true for a, for a teenage girl to say, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to know what they are, but a teenage girl would be able to tell you. So that's, sure. that's very nice to hear. Um, let's see. I did what, <laughs> I don't know why I wrote this down. I'm going through my notes here. I, mm -hmm. Do you think Tim Burton used Conrad Brooks as a bartender because he saw him in Polish Vampire? I doubt it. Because um, I know that Tim, well, I know Tim Burton spoke to uh, Paul Scrabo. And I know that he, you know, he talked to Conrad. He probably talked to whoever's still around from the Edward world. Yeah. So I, I would imagine he did it just because, you know, let's put him in there. They, you know, yeah. uh, like do it. I, I would like to think that, yeah, it would have been cool if he did. In fact, I would love Tim Burton to remake any of my earlier films. I think giving, uh, having Tim Burton remake Polish Vampire in Burbank with an animatronic skeleton and like Beetlejuice kind of thing would be the greatest thrill of my life, you know, sure. or any of my earlier films. Are right now I even when we did nudist colony of the dead I want in the back of my mind I thought wouldn't it be cool if this went the same route as little shop of horrors which started out as a cheap nothing little movie then it became a stage play then it became a big major motion picture musical um nudist colony of the dead started out as a cheap little movie then we did it as a stage play and now the only person missing is to remake it as a major motion picture with real singers and dancers and all that uh, that was always part of a fantasy world that I had hoped for, but that probably won't happen until after I'm gone, if it happens at all. Right. Well, I want to come back to that in a second. Hang on. My engineer, Jason, has a question. Yes, Jason. Yeah. Do, do, you, think, uh, do you think Tim Burton would cast Eddie Deason, though? <laughs> Good question. Uh, not, if, not if he wants the movie finished. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to... I ran into Eddie Deason about 15 or 20 years after Polish Vampire, one of these autograph shows, and there were no hard feelings, you know, I mean, it was like good of old times, hey, it was fun working with you, yeah, we should do it next time, pay me though, you know, but uh, it, uh, yeah, I got over it. I read an interview with him uh, where he talked about that, and he, he, you know, he gave his side, which was not unsimilar to what you said. Uh, but he was, it was, uh, you know, we're still friends. He's still a good friend and stuff. So I was, I didn't want to ask that, but it's good to hear that you guys are on good terms. Still. Yeah. And in fact, the thing that really broke the back, uh, when we were doing it is we were filming a scene with him and he didn't drive. So yeah. somebody would always drive him home, but because we were a little behind, we had to finish what we needed to shoot, even though we were done with him. So I said, you know, we'll be done in about a half hour, just relax and we'll have somebody drive you home that did it for him he didn't want to have to wait around for a half hour and that was the beginning of him wanting to leave the project because i guess you know when he worked for zemeckis and spielberg he probably had limos pick him up and drop him off so so i understand and i'm sure he was probably getting ripped by some of his friends you know you worked for spielberg why are you doing this dog and pony show you know and I, right. I could kind of get where he's coming from you know so yeah he's so over so you said you made a, a stage play of Polish Vampire, and then did you say you made no, a nudist colony? A nudist colony. Okay, yeah. and then a musical. Yeah, what we did is we took the basic storyline and adapted it to the stage. Uh, we added right. four 
four new songs. Okay. We, we used most of the original songs and we added four new songs. And then we also put more of a love story in between two of the kids. Okay. So they ended up, uh, you know, having a relationship and surviving to the end. And we did it in Hollywood for about four months. And I found that every week we were chasing our budget because, you know, to get a play going in Hollywood, you really have to promote it. And yeah. you get reviews and things like that, but we'd always have to put ads in the LA Weekly. And each time I try to put in a bigger ad and it was like $500, I think for a half page ad. So if we spent, I think it was $500 for the theater to rent the theater. So if we spent $1,000 a week, we might make back $700 that week. And then the next week we'd spend another thousand and maybe we'd make another seven. So I was always behind, but I kept thinking this could, this could work if we just keep it going. So four months, we kept it going. And, uh, you know, I used some of the actors I used from the old days. Um, mm -hmm. And I brought in some new people, some real singers. We tried to get in some really people that could sing well and mm -hmm. choreograph, dance the whole bit. And I thought, yeah, it played well as a stage show. It did really well. And there's clips, I think. There might be clips online. I'm not sure. I uh, did not run across them. I'm going to be looking. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure if there are or not, but there should be, <laughs> you know, because I know we did videotape the show. Yeah. I know on the DVD, there's some behind the scenes from the play. Okay. Uh, and I know the, the, the songs that we added are on the DVD of News Calling. Okay. But, I don't yeah. have physical of that, but I'm going to have to get that now. Okay. There you go. That's a, it was what I, that's a movie I definitely wanted to talk about for our listeners who don't know, Nudist Colony of the Dead is a zombie musical of sorts. And as a musical theater guy, I uh, got my degree in that. I was enamored immediately the first time I saw it. So mm. I, and I was going to ask you, could this possibly be a stage play? So no, no, there is one. Can that be, uh, can that be acquired for stage rights? Sure. I'll find people who want to do it. Do it. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, uh, like I said, we beefed up the storyline so that there's a romance between the two girls. I mean, the, 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 the main guy and the main girl that go to the camp. Mm -hmm. um, we actually put in a song that's almost kind of similar to Greece where, um, you know, when they're singing summer nights and they're both singing their side of the story and then they come together. We did that about, uh, you know, thinking about uh, don't fall for him, don't fall for her, you know, and they're trying to, <laughs> the two religious people, the very religious, one is Fanny White and the other one is, I forget his name now, but um, they're singing to their friends saying, don't fall for this person because they just want to screw you. And, you right. know, and as they, they develop a relationship, um, little by little, the kids are getting murdered like they are in the movie, uh -huh. but their relationship keeps them strong and they end up getting married at the end of the movie. And I mean, at the end of the stage play, uh -huh. And, uh, and then uh, the geeks have their own song called It's Tough Being a Geek. Um, the <laughs> preacher has a song, um, the one that sets the whole thing in motion. I think his song is called Why Can't Everybody Be Like Me? Um, and then the nudists have a song, which is called Scrody O D O D D. <laughs> so, uh, and they, they sing that at the beginning of the movie, which goes something like, we are naked, gay, and free, scrody o d o d d Like, the, I think one of the funniest lines is, I like the smell of the grass and trees. I like this, the buzz of the bumblebees. I like my balls flapping in the breeze, scrody o d o d d Anyway. <laughs> I, I'm just going to say, Mark, that uh, Spielberg and Zemeckis have nothing on that. They have absolutely nothing on that. Thank God for that, huh? So were you a musical guy? Did you like musicals? Is that what why you wanted to do that for a movie? Um, 
like some musicals. I, uh, I, I like Little Shop of Horrors. I think that's uh, that, you know, a brilliant musical. Again, mm-hmm. horror comedy, going back into that uh, realm. Um, you know, it depends. You know, I, I liked Greece. I like Chicago. I mean, there's certain musicals that I, I didn't care for, like, uh, was it Hello, Dolly? And, you know, so it just depends on the movie itself or the musical itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's, it was so much fun when I watched that movie. I can't remember the first time I watched it, but, you know, it comes out of nowhere. And it was just, oh, well, this is delightful. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it was so different and strange. And it kind of... Um, for when that came out, there were some other movies that came out after that. Um, Dead and Breakfast comes to mind where they had a musical number in that as well, zombies singing and dancing and stuff. Mm. Um, it kind of set a trend, I think, in an underground way that that you may not have known about even. But yeah. uh, I, awesome. I thought it was great. Mm. So I'm going back to my notes here. I could just sit here and just chat with you too. I'm having a great <laughs> time just doing that. So now with the advent of technology, as it's moved forward, especially digital technology, as a low budget filmmaker, obviously that's digital technology changed the market for everyone. You're not having to buy film stock. You don't have those lab fees. You don't have any of that stuff. How has that that changed how you're shooting movies now? Well, um, I guess it's changed in every way you can imagine. Uh, You don't have to worry about running out of film. Or, or the expense of, of film and processing. Um, on the, the minus side is, is that you've got a lot of footage to wade through now, as opposed to the old days where you don't have a lot. So yeah, you can do take after take after take and just wade through all this footage. Leave the camera out. running, you don't even worry about it. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I still try to be a little frugal about it, but sometimes we'll have two cameras going, so it'll save us time in setting up. Um, as far as editing goes, you, you can't compare, you know, digital editing with the old days. And, you know, in, in going back to Super 8, you're physically taking strips of film and putting them together. And when you make a cut, you're committing to that cut because you can't make it longer without a jump cut. So you'd have to cut long and, and then shorten it. And then I, I would, you know, then you'd use the, the linear method of editing where you'd have two machines and you'd be, you know, dialing them up. So I went through that process. Uh, now, just going on your computer, the only issue I have is the rendering time it takes to render out a movie. You might have to take a day to render out a movie when you're finally ready to go. Yeah. Uh, but as far as uh, budgets and all that are concerned, you know, no budget shouldn't even be an excuse anymore for any filmmaker. You know, they're always saying, well, I don't have the money to make a movie. I don't have, no, that's not an excuse now. You don't need no. the money. You can, you can grab an ensemble of actors that will work for free. Um, Maybe they'll be flaky. Maybe you'll have issues with them. But still, if you can find the ones that are devoted to their craft, you'll get away with it. And and I've refined my opening day speech over the years where I let them know right off the bat that this is not going to be a catered affair. You'd be lucky if we get a lunch once in a while. Otherwise, we'll be done before lunch and you can go wherever you want to go. Um, you kind of let them know early on that you're not basically working. You're not working for me as an actor. I'm inviting you to be a part of this experience. And that's all there is to it. And if they know that going into it, most of the time, they're fine. Like I say, you get a flake once in a while, but rarely. As far as, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I had one actor quit on this film that I'm doing now. But that was because of COVID and he got afraid of going up to a cabin 
with 10 people that could potentially have the disease. So mm -hmm. I kind of give them a pass on it. There's a part of me that's a little PO'd, but uh, the compromise was he let me film him in front of a green screen, basically making his character leave, you know, and explaining, well, I've done my job. Thank you, everybody. Have a good luck, you know, and mm -hmm. go away. So by shooting that in front of a green screen, I was able to put him in the scene with all the actors as he leaves the, you know, the, the location. And, and it works now. I just had to make a few alterations, give some of his lines to another actor, and you know, we moved it along. I was going to ask about that because you were sh shooting during this pandemic and mm -hmm. it's a, it was, a, I mean, a rough time for everybody to be able to do anything like this. And when you're doing something very low budget on that, I'm sure it becomes even more kind of nerve wracking. I'm sure it's, it, you, you were nervous to be able, you know, should, am I doing the right thing, bringing all these people together and doing this this way? How, how was that overall for you, just as far as nerves go? Yeah, I, well, I'm not one to really get nervous. Uh, and I'm very low key and, and I kind of handle everything in my life that way. Mm -hmm. I never get angry, never get upset. Rarely do I have a temper, I, but, when we started the film, the pandemic was just beginning to show its ugly head. And we went up to this cabin, which is about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. And we um, started filming it. We worked pretty much, I think we did a third of the movie that one weekend while we were, we were up there. We had most of the, the, the major characters up there at that time. Then the pandemic set in a little bit stronger and we were scheduled to go up to the cabin again um, just one actor said, can't do it, won't do it. You know, and he's, he's in his seventies. So he kind of feels he's vulnerable about it. Yeah. All right, fine. So I you know, wrote him out, figured out a way to write him out. And then um, most of the other actors were fine. They, you know, wore masks and they kept mm -hmm. their distance. There were a couple of times when I would go up to the cabin with just two or three of the actors just to do some pickup shots. But um, to go up there in a group, we only did that really, I think twice with you know most of all the actors so i can get some wide shots of all the actors in the okay. cabin um never really was worried about anybody leaving for good um i think the well yeah i, I joked about it. i said if any other actor leaves i'm going to just replace you with a plastic skeleton so you know right. anybody <laughs> knew the history knew what they meant or knew what i meant but we got through it. Um, there was one scene that we shot in my living room that kind of looks like a cabin. I made it look like a room in the cabin. Uh -huh. And we shot with the, there's an old guy that plays a priest in the film and this girl, and he was, he has diabetes and he feel, he felt vulnerable. So we shot the scene without either one of them being in at the same time. I shot all of his scene uh, uh -huh. by himself on one side of the couch. Then he left and then the girl came in shot her side of the scene and then just spliced them together. So there were compromises made along those lines, but yeah. nothing too severe. I mean, we didn't have anybody else give us any grief. And, you know, um, yeah, the guy that owned the cabin, who happens to be the musician for this film, the composer, um, he just said, all I say is, you know, you guys do the best to keep your distance and uh, wear your masks, mm -hmm. wipe your hands, you know. So we followed all the rules. Got, got, through, got through without any problems. Hey guys, sorry for jumping in in the middle here, but I wanted to give you a little context for what's happening. We had to wrap the interview early due to a scheduling conflict, but Mark was nice enough to join us again a few days later and wrap up with us. So what you'll be hearing after this is that part of the interview. Enjoy. All right, we good, Jason? 
Super. All right. Well, we'll just jump right back in. So we were talking about the deceased won't desist. And um, you'd been telling us a little bit about the production process on that. COVID obviously affected it. Um, and you were, um, we'd left off, you were shooting in your living room with one of the older actors. Right, yeah. So in that particular case, we ended up using, uh, I mean, we shot with uh, two different people, but they weren't there at the same time. So we had one young lady who was our one of our actresses. She was a little concerned because she she lives with a um, health worker who is around a lot of sick people. So she yeah. didn't want to give this older guy any possibility of catching anything. So we shot all of her footage first, and then she left, and then we shot the B side of the conversation. It was just them having a conversation on a couch. Yeah, so who would know? So kind of like Pacino and De Niro and Heat. Because they have them in the same room together. <laughs> got it. Yeah, so we got through. We had a couple of times where we did things like that, where we kept people kind of apart. Yeah. I was thinking about this after our conversation um, last Monday, and, or what, Thursday, I guess. And I started down a rabbit hole of Ernie Kovacs. And um, it just happened to get me thinking about our conversation and how much Ernie Kovacs played with the medium and uh, just television was so new at that time and he was doing a lot of things people haven't even realized you could do with that medium mm -hmm. and it reminded me a lot of your filmmaking where there's a lot of flying by the seat of your pants and solving problems just one after another and using the medium to do that. And that's a very good example of it. How often do you feel that, and I know you say you don't get stressed out too much and I, that's evident in talking to you, but how often do you think in a typical shoot, let's just say you're shooting for a day, are you having to look at that and use some of those tricks? Um, well, not really that often, because again, if you're talking the older days of shooting, when you're shooting film, mm -hmm. you have to be a lot more careful about how long you shoot, because every minute you roll film, you're spending more money. Right. Um, today, shooting on digital or video, whatever the, the format is, um, it's basically almost like you rehearse it, you shoot it, you rehearse it, you know, whatever you're doing, and, and it's, it's not really there aren't a lot of tricks or techniques that I think one needs to do today to, to make a film, especially since it's so much easier now mm -hmm. with technology that you've got these low light cameras where you can almost shoot under natural lighting, you know, and yeah. you really do that. Like my director of photography on the last three films, who's got a great cinematic eye, you know, we'll do a lot of artistic things with lights and shadows and, and stuff, stuff like that. But for the most part, there's not a lot of um, tricks that we need to do to get yeah. a decent image today. Okay. I noticed too, a lot of the actors that you use do other things in film. Um, there's uh, Scott McLachlan comes up, um, he's in God Complex, but he also does a lot of visual effects and prop work. Do you ever take advantage of those extra skills? You know, it's interesting you mentioned Scott because he actually just passed away recently. Oh, I'm so um, sorry to hear that. Yeah, I think probably within a month, uh, about a month ago or so. But uh, uh, in his case, uh, no, I... <laughs> <laughs> I supervise him. 
Yeah, I've got one of those too. <laughs> yeah, in in uh, in Scott's case, no, I didn't really use him other than um, as an actor and uh, as a musician because he he wrote uh, one of the songs for the God Complex. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this angel singing, you know, number that he wrote for us, and uh, that was it. I didn't really get into the other parts of his skills, which I mm -hmm. suppose I should have. In fact, we did a movie uh, when we did Rectuma. Um, we used Andrew Gold as our composer, who mm -hmm. has quite a lot of credits, too. Only most of his credits are actual songs that he wrote, like Lonely Boy and um, yeah. Thank You for Being a Friend for mm -hmm. the Golden Girls. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I didn't use a lot of that as I could have, because like he could have written a song or he, we could have taken Lonely Boy and adapted it to Rectuma, mm -hmm. Lonely Butt or something. <laughs> But no, I uh, sometimes my vision is a little more focused when I'm using somebody for a film, like in Scott's case, um, you know, he had that long scraggly beard, mm -hmm. which was perfect because it saved us on makeup for his character. Right. And, um, and then of course, you know, using him to write some of the music, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, the music in your films going even back to the very beginning, I love the scoring for so many of them, uh, Polish vampire, that it's almost like a, a little bit of a mix of Polish mountain music, some klezmer, things like that go running throughout. And it fits so well. And it actually enhances a lot of the humor um, and, and just the whole tone of the film. And it shows you, I'm guessing you're a music fan. Sometimes. I mean, you know, I, I like music. <laughs> I don't go to concerts or anything like that much, but I know uh, I enjoy a good score. And when uh, Greg Gross, who's the gentleman that scored my first five movies, mm -hmm. um, had a, a great ear, you know, I mean, he it was his idea to come up with the polka music during the theme song. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he's he. He's moved to Germany, so I haven't used him in years, but, uh, you know, he, he's very good at what he did. And, you know, he worked within our budgets, which was nothing. Even, <laughs> even better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it is so much fun. Um, it's, it, it's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't put a lot of attention toward when doing a lower budget film. Mm -hmm. um, they'll grab something public domain or... or um, go into those old there's libraries of music that's been composed and recorded that is just sure. available for that but is it important to you to make sure it's an original score um i try to get original scores all the time yeah in fact yeah. uh now that i think about it every one of my movies has an original score yes the um the last one that Greg Gross did for me was a little disappointing because he used a little bit of music from previous movies. I think he was getting tired or lazy or something. And um, I was almost going to put a joke in the title, you know, in the credits saying music recyclable music. Uh, but, but yeah, I try to get original music and the last uh, three movies is being scored by or was scored by uh, Jerry Danielson, who's mm -hmm. uh, who coincidentally, I may have mentioned, also owned the cabin that we filmed at for this last oh, okay. movie. So we kind of had a, you know, a double whammy there, a double right. bonus. But um, yeah, usually, you know, I'm not a big fan of canned music, especially if you hear it over, you know, other places. 
Yeah. Um, and, and you can usually find somebody willing to do your score. You know, I mean, you can find music students or people that are just trying to get a name for themselves. And sure. You, know, you may not be lucky enough to get somebody that's good, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you do what you can. You get yeah. you can. Now, I wanted to go back a little bit. I listened to an interview with you. It was actually on another podcast. And you talked a little bit about your favorite cult films. You brought up Dr. Horror's Erotic House of Idiots, which um, a friend of yours made. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray Dennis Steckler's films, though, you brought up. And I'm a huge fan of everything he's done. Um, for those who don't know, the incredibly strange creatures who died and became mixed up zombies. I think that's the full that's title. Close, close. Stopped living and became mixed up Stopped zombies. living, that's it, yeah. <laughs> Were you drawn to those at an early age? You know, when I saw that particular one, it was on a double bill with, um, oh gosh, Horror Castle, I think was the other movie that was an Italian-made movie. Mm-hmm. Um, incredibly strange, not incredibly strange creatures, but um, the Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters, I think. Um, <clears throat> let's see if I'm, it was a triple bill, now that I think about it. It was at a theater that ran... Uh, the uh, Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters, which was like a half hour film, mm-hmm. uh, Incredibly Strange Creatures and Horror Castle scared the shit out of me as a kid. I, I must have yeah. been about 10 or 11 years old. And they build it as the monsters will come off the screen and they will walk through the audience. And, you know, and there's a poster or a picture in the newspaper with a hand coming out and all that. And, you know, if you remember, um, um, Lemon Grove Kid Meet the Monsters, there's a segment towards the end of the movie mm-hmm. where there's lightning bolts and you see the mummy coming at you and all that. And at that point, there'd be these college students in the movie theaters that would come out and walk through the audience. And oh, some kids were throwing water balloons at them, I think. But, uh, <laughs> but I remember that made quite an impression on me because it was like, uh, how are these monsters going to come off the screen? I was terrified. Yeah. Anyway, so, and then I think when the other movies came on, I mean, I was really watching them more like this, you know, especially <laughs> the, uh, uh, the gypsy woman that was in uh, Incredibly Strange Creatures that poured acid on the guy's face. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, things like that. When you're like 10, 11 years old, pretty impressionable. So it, uh, I guess in some regard, that kind of stuck with me over the years. That So it was like one of those old spook shows where they would... You know, was it advertised like that with like the big, the, the, Um, I know you said the monsters will come out and walk through, but um, was it more of an event than just. Yes. I don't even even remember them mentioning the names of the movies in the ads. I think it just said like incredibly strange creep show, whatever. And that's what brought in the audience, you know, and it was a late, I mean, you know, three features in a theater runs pretty late if it started at like seven o'clock at night or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I remember, I mean, I have fragments of memory of that because again, I was so young at the time, mm-hmm. but I do recall that really, you know, holding an impact on me. That's great. Those are the old ads for those. The The signage alone is gorgeous, the stuff mm-hmm. they do with them. But uh, even in the later years, they were doing up into the 70s and it would, it will bring back to life Bruce Lee and things. <laughs> very yeah. tasteful <laughs> of course so are you a fan of william castle films and too not particularly i mean i'm aware of them and i <laughs> i think that uh 
you know, the uh, the Tingler had a little bit of an effect on me as I was a kid as well, especially during that sequence where the Tingler's low, loose in the theater. It's loose Great. in the theater. You know, yeah. so uh, you probably saw the movie Matinee, which was kind of yeah. based on, on his mm -hmm. life. And I do like the idea, again, later in life, at the time, it didn't make that much of an impact. But mm -hmm. later on, when you start thinking about the gimmicks that he used to do to try and get an audience to participate in the... Yeah fear factor of the movie the skeleton going down a clothesline and mm -hmm. i think it was 13 ghosts or maybe it was uh, that was how um house on haunted hill i think yeah yeah so i mean i i admire the showmanship that some of these filmmakers did back in those days and mm -hmm. something that we you know we just don't see much anymore you know? yeah movies in, in general are handled differently now you can you know watch the scariest movie ever made on your phone yeah you know so <laughs> so it kind of takes a little of the magic away from from my day yeah i that's a, a real issue for me the you know when i was in the 80s growing up if i wanted to find something i had to hunt for it Mm -hmm. And that hunt's gone now. So everything's become disposable. Um, the first time I thought I saw 2000 Maniacs, it was a tape of a tape of a tape of a tape somebody had and their older brother had it hidden away and it was forbidden. Now you can just jump, jump on YouTube and watch a few clips and go, oh, I get it. And it, you lose that hunt. Was that important to you when you were younger as such a movie fan as you were going out and looking for that? I'll tell you, not so much when I was younger, actually during my 20s or maybe mid-20s, early 30s, we had revival theaters out here in L.A. And uh, there's one in West L.A. called the New Art, where they run a lot of, or they used to, I guess they still are still around, but they would, um, you know, they would have their monthly agendas and it'd be like, oh, next uh, Friday, they're going to run three James Bond movies, you know, and a bunch of us would go to the theater to see Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger or Unfall yeah. You Only Twice or whatever. So there was that. Uh, they would have theme nights where they might show Stanley Kubrick films or whatever. And, and yeah, we'd, we'd look at their monthly calendar you know, every month to see what's coming up next. Um, like I say, the new art is still around, and yeah. I didn't, but, but they're not quite like they used to be, you know? And I, I guess every once in a while, they'll promote, see it on the big screen, The Wizard of Oz again or something right. like that. But it, um, I haven't gone there in years so i think that now because you can get whatever you want at the yeah. you know the touch of a dial for the most part uh it, it does take a, again a little bit of the magic away from yeah. the way it used to be i think drive-ins are starting to go that route um covid gave us a resurgence which i think is great and a lot of them are doing a lot of the revivals especially with horror Mm -hmm. um though there's one near us that's kind of gained national attention for doing that sort of stuff uh, they showed a 35 millimeter print of evil dead oh, which really? i was impressed somebody knew how to work that projector <laughs> yeah exactly. wow it's been some 90 year old guy he's about 65 i think he's yeah he's in his 60s yeah. uh, <laughs> we know who he is. <laughs> um yeah. is for you as a distributor now um streaming services of course all over the place and i i know they have their goods and bads is it also important to you to release physical media not at the moment um i i mean i have dvds made of my last well actually I, there's dvds of all my films but mm -hmm. uh like this current one uh, there's no plan to put it out on a dvd at this stage of the game or blu-ray mm -hmm. Um, it seems like everything now is streaming and yeah. 
especially a smaller film, you know, um, I think that in the earlier days when first it was VHS, then DVDs, then Blu-ray, that was sort of the way an independent filmmaker would get his movie out. If nothing else, he would just put it up on Amazon or he would do something, you know, individually with it where you don't really need a distributor. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't have a following or you don't have a, any kind of a name, uh, these movies are just going to sit there. Nobody's going to know anything about them. You're not going to find them. Um, you know, fortunately, because of some of the earlier films I did, people can search and find some of my projects and know that oh, he's done a few other films. I didn't know he did this one. I didn't know he did that one. And, and you know, and you might make sales that way. But with um, the last few films, and, and especially with the one that's upcoming, it's really uh, streaming. That's the way the audience are, are going to find these things. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on that? It's just progression. You know, it's it's the the way the the way the future is working right now. Mm -hmm. I think on one hand, it's nice to know that if you make a movie, you can get it out somewhere. Now you may not make a profit on it, you may not get a big audience, but you could, I mean, you could upload it to YouTube and run it for free. So you've got a platform where your film can be out there and you're not just running it for your mom in your garage or your mm -hmm. friends in the garage. So, you know, there's that. The other side of the coin is because anybody can now put whatever crap they make up online, you've now saturated the media. So you're gonna find a lot of these websites that'll just run, you know, somebody photographed a telephone book and we, here it is, you know. And right. So it's a double-edged sword, you know, if, you're, if your film is good enough or not even good enough but popular enough to break through mm -hmm. then yeah you got a nice form a nice audience uh, or a place for people to find it if it's uh, if it's a bad film or something that you know you didn't put a lot of effort into it it still can get out there you can still put it on youtube or vimeo or any of these others uh, for me my personal con with it is just they can change things and they already are they're editing there's there's been some cases where netflix is censored or changed the endings of films that really? they're streaming yeah well i've heard of some of these apps that you can get where it'll go through the movie and bleep out the dirty words jesus or christ you know and, but, but i'll tell you this goes back blockbuster used to do that oh blockbuster video would do that livid about what they would do you know, I mean, my feeling is, is that, uh, in fact, I think there was a time where filmmakers wanted a disclaimer put on the beginning of any movie that was altered. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know if that's still in effect or if they're even really doing that much anymore now. But the, the big problem is, is, yeah, anybody that can download a movie could, you know, do whatever they want with it. Yeah. Even if, even if parents decide they want to make the cuts themselves to show their kids. I mean, right. that's unfortunately the problem of the digital age. Anybody can take a movie and do whatever they want with it. Right. You know? Yeah. It's a bummer. Um, <laughs> anytime you lose it, I can, the nostalgia on Blockbuster is lost on me. I hated them then. I still hate well, them now. <laughs> well, you got to think back to whenever movies used to go to regular television, they were yeah. always right you know and I mean, that annoyed the crap out of me especially if i was watching a movie that i liked and i knew mm -hmm. uh well going back to the james bond series i knew every line of dialogue from any one of those movies so when they would re-edit the movies or take out things uh there was a time you may not even be aware when they put on her majesty's secret service on television for the first time they literally put they, they reshuffled some of the scenes and they had a narrator 
at the beginning saying, how did I get in this situation? Me, James Bond. <laughs> you, can, um, you can go to YouTube because I actually uploaded a version that they aired on television. Oh. Uh, it was called the ABC Cut of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It's on YouTube. You'll see it. I get the actual soundtrack from that original era. Um, and I just recreated the cuts to show you what happened. But yeah, I was stunned. But wow. the, what they did is they took the movie and they ran it over two nights. And to stretch it out, they took some of the action scenes from the end, put it at the beginning with this stupid narration. And then they right. keep cutting back and forth from, from you know, the, the beginning to the end. It was terrible. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it just... Back in those days, networks had the um, right to cut the movie any way they wanted to. Wow. That's why, you know, I'd never want to watch a movie for the first time on network television. I, yeah. I, I don't even know if that's, I guess they still do it. I I, I'm sure there's still a few stations that do. I remember that's how I watched Halloween the first time. I was oh like eight. It still terrified me, but... <laughs> When I watched I it, when, when the Go Godfather, ahead. when the Godfather aired on uh, television, they would overdub a lot of the lines, <laughs> and you would never hear things like "you son of a buck," yeah, or, you know, <laughs> Judas Priest. You know, I mean, they they just came up with all these new alternatives. There was a movie with Burt Reynolds called uh, Deliverance. Oh yeah, there's a line that Ned Beatty says. You know, sometimes your ideas are about as useless as tits on a boar hog. Yeah. They change that line on television. You know, sometimes your ideas are about as useless as butter beans. There's <laughs> <laughs> your television. <laughs> yeah, famously good fellas, mother flipping. Sure. Yeah, You're right, mother flipping. Yeah. Blame Tipper Gore. Oh, did you see the Big Lebowski when that aired on television? No. You see what happens? This is what happens when you what was it? Um, when you do something to a stranger in the Alps. Yeah. When you do <laughs> When you find a stranger in the Alps, that's exactly right. You see that, Larry? When you find a stranger in the Alps, Larry. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got a cult following, obviously. And have, do you ever do uh, live presentations of your films? Uh, there have been some in the past, not a lot. Uh, there was a theater in Los Angeles that ran Queer Wolf one time and asked me mm -hmm. if I would come and be there. It wasn't just me, it was uh, uh, Joel Reed who did oh, uh, yeah. uh, Blood Sucking Freaks mm -hmm. and a few other filmmakers there. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing because it was a marathon of just cult movies. Mm -hmm. And there were people in the audience with sleeping bags. And, you know, I guess it was a 24 hour thing. and. There were people that were, when Queer Wolf came on, they were reciting lines from the movie as awesome. it was being said. And, and that was, part of me was very flattered. The other part of me was like, uh, I hope, you know, there's a metal detector in this theater because I, I was afraid that some of these fans could be nutty. But, um, uh, and yeah, that was it. I mean, we've, we've had done some things at colleges and, and things mm -hmm. like that, but we've never done any uh, other than the one I just mentioned, never did like a Mark Pirro night at this theater or is it something you're tempted to do in the future? Uh, I, I wouldn't object if, I mean, I wouldn't do it myself. If somebody else put it together, I'd be very supportive of it. I mean, I'm always supportive of any place that wants to run any of the things we've done. You know, because again, it's like an artist wants your art seen. And mm -hmm. what good is it going to be doing hanging up in your own living room? So, right. yeah, whenever any of our movies get out there and, you know, once in a while, you'll find somebody, somebody will send me, hey, somebody just reviewed your movie on such and such a website you know and 
And sometimes I find it amusing. Yeah. Again, these are movies that were made 30, 40 years ago, and some people are just discovering them today. There's um, yeah. a couple of English reviewers. They have a, a thing called Off the Shelf, I think it's called, Reviews. Mm -hmm. And they spend a half hour just talking about Queer Wolf. Oh, great. And, and, and you know, and, and loving it, you know, which is all so favorable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's one of the positives of new media is that things that could easily be forgotten are getting discovered by new generations. Right. And everybody's a reviewer now. You know, you don't have to wait yeah. to learn them all. <laughs> well, I have to ask, you brought up Joel Reed. Did you have any interactions with him? Uh, we talked. Uh, I don't recall any other interactions per se, but uh, I think I asked him about the, the director's cut of Bloodsucking Freaks, which Troma released. Mm -hmm. I said, what, what was different about that? He was absolutely nothing. There is no director's <laughs> cut. My cut was the director's cut, period. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that was it. I don't really remember any other major discussions we had. Okay. I read a biography on him recently, and he, he basically came across as kind of a surly bar fly. <laughs> I was wondering if that was your experience. He was an interesting character, as I yeah. recall. I almost picked a fight with him. Was you that? picked a fight with him? I almost did. I mean, we got into an argument about blood-sucking <laughs> wow. freaks. About blood-sucking freaks. There you go. Because, what could one possibly him. argue about? What no. did you argue about? Well, he's convinced that Troma's still owning money for it, even though they bought it from him. Oh. It's did you Troma. hear that? It, yeah. Troma. Right. I, mean, I can't believe Troma would withhold money. But... <laughs> Troma once uh, wanted a bunch of my films, and uh, mm -hmm. the, the the person that was the acquisition man said, uh, "You know, we'd love to take your films, and but the offer was so incredibly ridiculous. Yeah. I don't remember the specifics, <laughs> but it was like, uh, no." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, then, but then 10 years from now, I could pick a fight with you about it. <laughs> 10 years from now, yeah, I'll be in my wheelchair. <laughs> what? I was, a, I was a filmmaker? <laughs> What's a trauma? So you've got The Deceased Won't Desist. That's um, going to be released soon. Mm -hmm. And um, is that going to go to Tubi? Do you have other streaming services interested in that? Uh, you know, we'll try to get it wherever we can get it. Netflix is sort of like the cream of the crop, but they're very mm -hmm. particular about what they take. So yeah. uh, at the moment, um, yeah, it'll probably be Tubi and, and maybe Roku and, you know, Flickadoodle yeah. whatever's out there. I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're premiering it on August 26th and hopefully we can get some press there or we can get some distributors there. It's, it's very hard to get any influential people at a Hollywood screening unless Julia Roberts is in the movie. So, right. You know, so we'll, we'll see what happens. And my thing is, is I've got these guys that, that represent me in my films. I just pretty much handle or turn it over to them and say, mm -hmm. you know, let me know if anything happens. What, what's the premiere experience like for you? What are your films? Me? Well, it's, it's the orgasm to the foreplay, you know, I mean, uh, making the movie is the foreplay and it takes a long time to do that. And then when you premiere it, it's sort of like that release, you know, you've got everybody there that's involved in the movie for one night, they're little celebrities, you can bring them up at the end and they can take their bows and all. Um, you know, and I've often joked about it and it's always not so much a joke that the premiere always costs me more than the movie. You know, um, you know, the rental of the theater. Sometimes we cater it. Sometimes we have a little uh, a little party afterwards. Whatever it is, 
Um, this one here, I got a fairly good deal with the theater that we're uh, running because the guys that represent me uh, know the owner of the chain and he yeah. gave us a great break on, on this particular theater, but we're not catering it because they have a snack bar, which they'll leave open and, uh, you know, but we'll treat it like, a, you know, like an event. It'll be a fun little evening for the actors and, yeah. um, you know, it's a long-winded way to respond to your question, but basically that's it. It's sort of like, this is what we wait for, you know, after a year or two of working on a film. Yeah, not long-winded at all. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's exciting. You can see your name on the big screen, and I don't think that would ever get old. Right. Well, it's more for the actors, too, because, you know, they, again, this is showing that they put their time and effort into something that now will get the response. And, mm -hmm. you know, if it's a comedy and it gets good reactions, like Rectuma was probably the best premiere we ever had. Uh, we did it up at the American Film Institute up here in L.A., uh -huh. nice theater. And um, I, I recorded the response and without exaggerating, you, you can't go 45 seconds in this audio without a laugh. I mean, it was that, the, the response was that great. And I got calls from the actors afterwards saying, oh, you hit it out of the park with this one. This was so great. This was wonderful, blah, 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 blah. So um, yeah, that was, that was, you know, a great night. And, and all the premieres are nice, you know? I mean, some of them are not quite as, big as that one was but uh, yeah. we did the god complex we did that one at raleigh studios and they had a, a great reception area downstairs after the screening so we had a catered event there with all the actors and their friends and, and people and we were selling jesus heads and we were selling you know paraphernalia we called it you know all these different uh, paraphernalia. <laughs> selling dvds from old movies and, yeah you know, I said, I'm not doing this gang to try and make a profit. This is just to offset the cost of tonight, which is more money than we spent on all these movies. So, yeah. Well, you brought it up. I have to ask about Submissive Jesus. Ah, Submissive Jesus. Well, I just happen to have you right here. There you know, he is. Submissive Jesus. <laughs> this so, was designed. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to, what, what inspired? Well, first, let's explain to the listeners what it is. Well, what, geez, all right, what this is, is uh, this was made for the movie, The God Complex. And basically um, in the movie, Jesus and God, uh, they want to kind of hang around humanity, but they don't want to really be discovered. So they get a job at a uh, metropolitan toy manufacturing company. Uh, Jesus has you know glasses like Clark Kent and God is there with a toupee on and on. <laughs> And uh, one of the things that they're making, and not Jesus and God, but the toy company is making the submissive Jesus toy, which God and Jesus find very offensive. But they say that uh, the way this works is, is that you pray to it, and then you twist the crown of thorns on his head, and he will respond with one of a hundred different responses. So mm -hmm. uh, let's see what he had. Like, for example, if I said, please, Jesus, would you allow me to make a million dollars this month? No, no. There you go. So anything you ask him, he will respond. You call that pain. Try listening to Pat Robertson praying for 20 minutes. <laughs> um, so anyway, we um, after we made one of these for the movie, I thought, you know what? Let's throw a little merchandising in this. You know, the Hulk does it. And my Marvel does it. Let's do this. So so we made 2,500 of these, uh, sold about 860. So I still have a large supply left. Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm not Mattel and I don't have the, you know, the reach of Mattel, but, 
But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's it. So we got, and it comes with a uh, instruction manual which tells you how to pray responsibly. Um, and it also comes with two coupons. One is dinner with God mm -hmm. uh, when you eventually die. And the other one is a, if, if you are destined to go to hell, you have a get out of hell free card that comes with it as well. You just present that to the, you know, the, the evil ruler or whatever, and he will <laughs> let you go to heaven. Of course, you have to provide your own transportation. But other than that, you know, it's pretty cool. So, And those are available on your website. Uh, yeah, we can, you can get it at the Paramount website, or you can go to thesubmissivejesus.com. Yeah, and, that actually redirects to your website. Yeah, they're all basically okay. connected. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but um, so Jesus, will people go to this website and buy you? Forgive him, Father, for he is a total bunghole. Okay, no. Anyway, uh, a third of the responses are yes, a third are no, and a third are ambiguous. Right. <laughs> Well, I think it's delightful, and I'll be getting one. Oh, that's sure. going. That's going right on my mantle. Um, cool. so. <laughs> Let me know. I'll autograph it. Make it worth twice as much. The God Complex is a very funny film. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's one I recommend strongly. Yeah, What's that? Only if you're not religious. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't show religious. it to your Catholic friends. <laughs> wouldn't do that. Evangelical my sister, friends. <laughs> my sister almost disowned me because of it. No shit. Yeah, she's pretty religious, and, and in fact, uh, this wow. is the only premiere that she didn't attend hmm. because you know, making fun of her sky daddy. Yeah, right. but uh, but no, and having been brought up Catholic my whole life, there was a lot of questions that I had that were never answered. Oh, they hate so, that. So I answered them in my movie. You know, it's like we take some of the basic plot points from the Bible and pretty much put them on their ear. You know, like yeah. what happens when Noah gets out of the ark? Where are all the dead bodies floating in the water? You know, and uh, um you know I, I have a religious friend that tolerated the movie but the one thing she couldn't tolerate was the burning bush that was <laughs> but yeah i'm really proud of that one yeah i you should be it's actually i've recommended it to a couple of people i'm like if you don't watch any of his other films watch this one it's right <laughs> up your alley i guarantee you'll like it um yeah catholicism and i didn't get along very well, well so. you know that's probably because you have some logic in you i did ask a priest once about the sin of thought and i'm like so if i think something bad i've done it so if i think about giving a homeless guy a dollar is that good <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work that way no. <laughs> <laughs> it only works with the evil stuff right <laughs> i know it's crazy i have a couple of religious or semi-religious friends that are not there anymore and it was mainly because of the uh you know, the crap they throw into your head it's like child abuse yeah. i mean you know i got a friend that used to go to confession he was an altar boy actually it was mccafferty john mccafferty oh and uh he was an altar boy for years and he said that you know you go to confession then you come out of confession you see a hot babe walking down the street you get a heart on you start thinking oh and what i would like to do to her and now you got to go back to confession again. <laughs> you know or or wait a week with the sin on your soul I mean, it's, ridiculous. it's just insane so so I made the God complex as sort of an answer to all the abuse I had to take, you know, as a as a young Catholic and all yeah. that went down there. Overall, in your films, how much of you do you feel goes into them? Like in that case, it's answering a very specific issue, but mm -hmm. in all of them, how much are you putting of yourself into those? Your own personal experience? Um, I don't know. Maybe depending on the film. Uh, 
you know, 50%, 40%. I mean, like if you take a complete fantasy film like Polish Vampire, you know, I guess you could take the coming of age aspect of my life and discovering sexuality or something in that mm-hmm. regard. Um, you take a film like uh, Curse of the Queer Wolf. I had a friend that once picked up a girl in a bar and turned out when he got her home, it wasn't a girl at all. So mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, it wasn't a funny situation for him, but it was hysterical to me. And I thought, what an idea for a movie. You know, but he still uh, closed the deal? I don't think so. Uh, I, don't recall, yeah, I, I don't recall <laughs> the end result of that uh, encounter. But then um, Rage of Innocence, it's interesting. There was a, a girl that was talking shit about me on the internet um, I don't know, about eight or nine years ago mm-hmm. for no reason at all other than she was an actress that never got a job in any of my movies. And she was she was a little unstable anyway. And I and she and she was, you know, like putting things up online saying this guy's, you know, terrible, he's done this, he's done that. And you know, none of that was true. So I started thinking how vulnerable a person is if anybody makes a um, accusation. And if it comes from a, a girl in the case of Rage of Innocence, you got mm-hmm. a 15-year-old girl that's making up all of these stories about this guy. Mm-hmm. And she's clever enough to back it up with evidence, you know, like a condom or, or uh, with his semen or whatever mm-hmm. she, she has. And I thought how incredibly vulnerable a person would be under those circumstances. So I made the movie about this teenage sociopath that just doesn't want this guy dating her mom and she'll go to extremes to, you know, to make that happen. Now, uh, again, it was a, a, a minor thing for me when the girl was making these accusations online but it, it triggered what an idea to make a movie about sure. something like that, you know. Um, Rectuma was pure fantasy. There's no, I can't think of anything that ties me into that one logically. Um, and what other movies did I do? Um, Nudist Colony of the Dead, no, just, just want to make a fun musical. So some of these movies, to, to answer your question more clearly, some of these movies, yes, I do draw from life experiences. Others just come from pure fantasy. Mm-hmm. Just remember Colorblinded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to date a black girl, uh, Darwin Carson, yeah, and yeah. she said that life would be different if she were, uh, you know, born white. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wouldn't that be an interesting idea to make a movie about a beautiful black woman that one day wakes up and becomes a beautiful blonde white woman? Mm-hmm. And that, so that movie came from, I guess, an idea, experience, you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah. How many of those do you have just <clears throat> tucked away? Things you want to make in the future? You know, I'm pretty much close to done, I think. Really? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I've said this to a few people before, and I've actually probably said it a little more publicly, is that I'm just kind of getting to the age where these putting together these little dog and pony shows when you just bring all your friends together and my dad's got a bar and I got a key, let's make a movie, let's do a show. <laughs> you know, is, I'm, I'm sort of outgrowing that. So if I ever did any other projects, it would probably be as a hired gun for somebody else's production. Um, cause I pretty much, you know, told all the stories I have to tell. I mean, I've got some scripts floating around that I may or may not sell or, or push or something like that, but, mm-hmm. uh, but to do them the way I've been doing them for the last 40 years, I think I've kind of come to the end of the road of that. Oh, bummer to hear, but I get it. Hey, you know, it's a lot Tarantino, of work. Tarantino says he's quitting after 10 movies. I got 11. So that puts me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I win Quentin. That's part of the reason I'm such a proponent, especially of low budget films, even if it the end result doesn't look good, 
you finished a film and that's a lot of work. I don't think, and, and most people don't really understand how much goes into making a film. Um, I mean, yeah, you're not a firefighter out in the woods or something, but sure. they're still putting in a lot of work to get that accomplished. And I've seen multiple people start the process and abandon it. I'm sure. And so that to actually complete something, it's got to feel good. 11 films and the amount of time you've done them is a lot of work. Yeah. And, uh, but with each movie that I did, you know, you bring more to the table, you know, you learn with each project and you start saying, okay, what didn't work on that film? Like with Polish vampire, my biggest obstacle was my lead quitting the movie, right? you know, and, and okay, we got past that. And then there were other issues that come along when you're making a movie, whether it's, you know, you don't get the location you thought you were going to get, or you don't get the people, you know, you don't get the devotion to, of the actors that might say in the beginning, yes, I'm all for this. And then after several months of shooting, it's like, oh, geez, I got to go back and shoot again. You know, they, they lose the interest. But with each movie, I've gotten more refined with the speech that I give the actors at the very beginning, telling them that, you know, well, this is not making a movie like a traditional Hollywood production. We're shooting around everybody's schedule. If you've got another gig, we'll you know we'll take the back seat and let you do your other gig, and then come and do our thing. So, so you know, um, the last handful of movies I've done, probably going far as far back as 1998, have all gone pretty smoothly. You know, we haven't really had any major issues with the actors, locations, or anything. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but I think that as you know, as you you move along and you start realizing what you've done that you could uh, improve upon you basically get better and better at it. And I, I don't know if it was Tarantino that once said, when you're a prize fighter and you start realizing there's a time when you might as well get out of the ring because you can stick around and you can keep fighting, but you're probably gonna get your ass kicked a lot more. Yeah. And, you know, he used, I think he used Blake Edwards as an example where he, you know, he should have stopped at this point, but yet he kept going on. Yeah. And then you just, you know, you, you just keep seeing these movies that are forgettable. Yeah, yeah. And you can, <laughs> there's any number of directors where you could pinpoint uh he just gave up right at exactly. this point, he was just kind of autopilot yeah right yeah well i'm very happy for the movies you made i thank you very much for doing and giving the world those they're a lot of fun to watch um i'm definitely going to be showing one or two in future screenings when i do my little movie nights for folks um thank you so much for your time uh, it's been loads of fun. I'm sorry we had to kind of cut it into two pieces here, but I do the magic of editing. Yeah. I'm say it changed. <laughs> That's okay. It'll be a lesson in continuity if I put up any video. So. Ah, perfect. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. All right, Don. Very happy to help. That was Mark Puro. If you haven't watched his movies, I hope hearing him talk about them will inspire you to go check them out. You can find them on Tubi. You can also find him at Pyromount.com. Link is in the description for this podcast. If you're in America, have a great Thanksgiving. If you're outside of the U.S., just have a great week. It's a holiday here, though, for us. And if you are celebrating, please don't mix any experimental turkey with marijuana. I think we all know what happened to Herschel. All of you guys, if you go out and about, please take care of your servers, because as always at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we do not miss on hospitality. I'll talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye.